Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Them bongos make me smile every time I hear them. Welcome to episode 144. Firstly as ever, thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. This podcast would not be able to be produced without them. And although its content is free to everyone, if you like what you hear and you want to make a small donation, go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. You'll see a link tree drop down box. Click on Patreon and that'll show you what to do. It starts at £3 a month, which is pretty much just a cup of coffee, right? But anyway, back to this week's episode. Today, I'm going to introduce you to Madeline Kessler. She's an architect, but not just any architect. She's the architect who co-designed the 2021 British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. That is some feather to put in your cap, is it not? The architectural Biennale is on until sometime in November... Maddie gives the precise date in this podcast. And if you're unable to attend this year, Maddie also tells you how you can view a video tour online. I've seen one of them myself and it is damn impressive. Now I'll give no spoilers to what you're about to hear, but this year's pavilion focuses on repurposing public spaces. And it's pretty amazing the possibilities she makes us aware of. But please come and find out for yourself when I spoke over Zoom with architect Madeline Kessler. I do have several questions that I ask yeah. each guest. And one of them is, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work? Um, so I'm an architect. 
and I work with public space. So I'm really interested in the spaces that everyone can access and use. Um, and I suppose my work, it really explores the different scales of architecture in the city. So everything from policy and legislation, right the way down to material detail um, of sort of a, a timber seat or something that you sit on. Oh, wow. Um, and everything in between, yeah. Oh, and how did you get into public space as an architect? It's a good question. I suppose I've always been really interested in people um, and how people use space. Um, and I think I was always exploring that in my work as, as a student. And then as I grew into practice, um, was really lucky to work at some amazing studios, really exploring sort of uh, temporary um, interventions in public space and how those can kind of really transform uh, spaces at different times of year to allow people to use them in different ways. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, yeah. And through that became uh, really interested in how sort of through really simple design moves and interventions, you can make a huge difference uh, to someone's daily life or how they use that space. And I think I'm really interested in also how cities evolve and how it's really important for spaces to kind of evolve and keep sort of transforming and changing um, and how you do that in a way that's kind of beneficial to everyone. How did you have a route into architecture? So I um, actually originally studied a structural engineering and architecture degree. I, when I was at school, um, I suppose that's when I first heard about architecture. I think I was, I was choosing my A-levels and someone mentioned it to me and I'd never heard of architecture or architects. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> it's quite a, lo- quite a long word. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I got a bit confused with like archaeology and other things when I was, when I was researching it. <laughs> Um, and then as I looked into it more I thought this sounds fascinating um, at school I really loved geography like I really loved the human side of geography yeah. um, and people and cities um, and I also really liked maths and art and um, it just sort of looked like a subject that brought all these different things together um, and then I remember I went on um, an open day to Sheffield University and they mentioned they had this engineering architecture course and I thought that looked really interesting um, and so yeah I applied for that and ended up studying that and then through through that course I was um, really lucky to be sponsored by an engineering firm who I then worked for in my oh, summer wow. holidays and I think something I really loved about the course was that it's a vocational degree so yeah. you have that kind of grounding of being in practice which I've always loved um, at the same time as being able to explore things more conceptually uh, within the education and I do think it's a brilliant degree that I recommend to everyone because although the kind of full architecture degree is very long it's sort of seven years but you can study the first part for three years and you get like a normal degree which you can go off and do anything and you learn so many different skills within that degree because it kind of is crossing so many different things and you can take it and explore whatever you want to explore within that so I've got friends who've gone off and done all sorts of of different things uh, from that from that same degree we studied You've sort of reached a point in your career where you've got quite an accolade under your belt at the moment, haven't you? Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's been a it's been a, a very surreal kind of uh, two years now, actually. So, yeah, I think uh, you're probably sort of referencing the British <laughs> Pavilion at Venice, um, yeah. which my friend Manage Verghese and I we entered a competition uh, back in 2019. Now, there's an open call every other year uh, to curate the pavilion there 
um and we could yeah um we won the competition and ever since then it's just been uh, uh yeah, working on the pavilion which has been amazing but it was obviously it was supposed to open last year and then with the pandemic it was delayed by yeah. it um and now it's finally open to venice the garden of privatized delights and yeah it's it's just super exciting to see it up there to see people exploring it walking around and it's been amazing to be able to really explore public space um in this in this kind of quite unique uh kind of project and way can i just go back a little bit how yeah, was yeah. It when you saw or heard that the the pair of you had had won this open call so it's something we look back on um, and it's I think our reaction was really odd when I look back we spent the whole competition uh, thinking this was our test for when we do it properly yeah and I think really. that's I think that's something particularly women suffer with um, <laughs> and for some reason we thought because we've not curated a pavilion before we wouldn't be able to curate one, but then yeah. why would you have curated the British Pavilion before? It's like a once in a lifetime project. <laughs> so it's just ludicrous. Um, and we always now say to students and stuff when we're talking to them, just apply apply for the project and have confidence. Because yeah. when we won it, we were just like, are you, are you sure? Like, are you sure, are you, sure you want to give it to us? Um, and... I mean, I look back and I'm like, yeah, of course we could do it. But I remember when we won it, we were just like, oh, my God. Like, you know, are they? do, do they know what they're doing? Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's been a roller coaster over two years. And I think we've it's definitely given us a lot of confidence in the process that we are much more competent than perhaps um, we thought. And that it is totally possible to create a pavilion if you haven't curated one before. Um, and I think, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean the whole kind of premise and idea behind the pavilion was to create these series of kind of immersive installations. Um, and yeah, we took like sort of wanted to really create these kind of architectural interventions that anyone can go in and interact with. And it's not about having lots of dense text on walls or anything. It's really a place that everyone can sort of walk around and understand and yeah. test. Um, and that seems to have been really successful and worked really well. So it's really exciting to see that. Um, yeah, it's really exciting to see it in action. And for an architect to be involved with anything in Venice, everything is just beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's a dream of a city. It's just incredible. And I think every time I go there, I always go to uh, the Carini Stampilia Foundation. It's one of my favourite buildings in the world uh, by Carlo Scarpa and sort of the basement of that building. It's it's channeled to allow water in at different levels of the flooding. Um, and... I think it just takes you to another world and I think that's the amazing thing about architecture and, and space space really like it can just take you into another place and another world and give you that space to reflect and contemplate um and I just I just love Venice like every corner you turn you're just kind of you're in another kind of picturesque exactly. magical place exactly um and I did because I did finally go out to see the pavilion um, sort of in June. It opened in May and we couldn't go out because of all the restrictions, but I went in June and it just felt like the most emotional experience because I hadn't left the UK since 2019. And to suddenly be in Venice, like surrounded by all these voices, these smells, um, like these views, and it's just all so picturesque and your senses are just all on fire. It's open now, is it? It is. It's open until the end of November. And the Garden of Privatised Delights, um, you are making the viewer or asking the viewer to reconsider their public environments. 
Exactly, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit? I know that there's a certain route that you can go. Could you tell yeah. us about the route as soon as you walk up the stairs to the pavilion? Yeah, so um, the Garden of Privatised Delights, it's sort of inspired by a painting by Hieronymus Bosch called The Garden of Earthly Delights. Um, and the exhibition is created by myself and Manager Verghese, and we sort of took this painting actually right at the beginning from our competition. Um, and we really loved how it was set up as a triptych. And so you sort of have heaven on the left and hell on the right and then this middle ground in between. Yeah. Um, and the painting's absolutely amazing, all these incredible forms in it and colours. Um, and then we took that painting and we reinterpreted it as a way to look at privatised public space. So we're looking at how often you kind of, it's set up so you look at private as evil, public as heaven, and then actually we're all living in this middle ground in between. So how do we navigate this weird middle ground of public-private that we're all living in today? And that's what the pavilion is. So as you enter the pavilion, you're entering into that middle ground and you immediately encounter um, the Garden of Delight. So you, you encounter this garden square and all you can see are these railings and planting and you can see there's something behind, but you can't access it. And you're forced to continue around the entire pavilion until you find yourself back inside that garden square. And that's really setting up the issue of privatised public space. Mm. That it's not accessible to everyone. That often you need a key or, you know, you need to, you need to be in the club uh, to, to gain access. And therefore, how do we break down these physical and intangible and intangible barriers? How do we allow everyone to be able to access our, our privatised public spaces? And then as you continue through the pavilion, you're sort of taken on this journey where you follow the garden path through sort of your British town or city. Um, and then you can step off the path in places. So you go through sort of the pub, uh, the high streets, uh, sort of the youth centre, looking at places in the city for teenagers and young people. Um, and then we've got these two ministry rooms, which are sort of exploring the policy uh, behind access to public space. So one of them's looking at sort of facial recognition technology um, and ownership of data. And the other one's looking at sort of systems assemblies and ownership of, um, uh, well, how we can have more kind of collective ownership over common lands. Um, and then we've also got our sort of surprise seventh room in the basement of the British Pavilion, which is looking at uh, public toilets. Um, and so it's opening up um, the toilet in, in the basement of the pavilion, which many people don't know exists. Excellent. Um, and putting that on display and, yeah, just really looking at how it's it's well and good to have really lovely uh, sort of public spaces in our cities. But unless you've got the infrastructure to allow everyone to use them, they're not really accessible to everyone. So you know, unless you've got free toilets and, and drinking fountains and free seating for people to use, you're excluding people from those spaces. Yeah. I mean, you, when, when you go up and in and you've got those railings in front of you and you can't access that space beyond the railings, there's, if you're in London, you'll know lots of those private squares that, mm -hmm. that you may well come across. And, yeah, I've always felt quite envious of those that have got access to some of those gardens, you know. And, and many of them, they were originally surrounded by residential properties, but obviously yeah. now many of them are just surrounded by offices and stuff, and they are completely empty, like in the daytime. I mean, where Manager and I studied the Architectural Association, that's around one of these garden squares. And although the uh, university had like a key to the square, like it was just a massive faff to get hold of it. No one ever knew where it was. So yeah. we'd all sit eating our lunch, like on the pavement around the square, and the square was completely empty. Um, but interestingly, in the Second World War, 
they melted a lot of the railings around the square. Oh, wow. Um, because they, well, it was under the pretense it was going to be used for ammunition, but in fact, that didn't happen. But what happened was all these squares opened up uh, for the public to use for the first time. And uh, there are sort of texts and stuff from the time, you know, from people talking about how amazing it was to be able to suddenly meet people in these squares. Um, and then after the war, um, English Heritage reinstated uh, many of those railings, and that's when some of them became publicly accessible, oh, wow, but okay. many of them were kind of closed off again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you mentioned the, I mean, the, the second area you mentioned there was the pub. Mm. I mean, the, the demise of the British pub has it's been so noticeable over the past maybe 10 years, um, with a shift in um, the drinking culture as well as the, the super high taxis that goes on top of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad. And I think even sadder is when you see everything just getting converted to residential properties, especially on the high street as well. And, you know, actually the importance of having uh, these kind of social centres. I mean, the pub is, I mean, that's what that room is exploring. It's much more than just the pub. Um, it's much more than just a watering hole. You know, it's especially in rural areas. It's like, you know, real, real community hubs. And how do we therefore sort of reinvent the pub for the 21st century to go beyond that? Um, and I think over the past year where we saw kind of the first time ever um, every single pub in the UK uh, close due to lockdowns. Yeah. Um, I think in places they, you know, there were reports of like increases in alcoholism because, you know, if people were just drinking at home rather than in a pub where you're in quite a controlled environment. Um, yeah, it, it saw sort of real increases in that. So often people think the pub is the cause of alcoholism, but... Um, it isn't quite that simple. No. And I think that's what a lot of our pavilion is exploring, like these issues. They're not very simple black and white issues. And increasingly, everyone's sort of wanting to see the world in black and white. And it's like that. That's just what it is, a really grey area. And how do we therefore explore that? And yeah, just like you're saying, like pubs are super important parts of well, you know, the pub that was on our estate where I live. Um, it was it was taking so little money, it started just opening of an evening. So then it had the quandary of, of what it'd done of a daytime. So of a daytime, they tried opening up um, the the quieter bar, the saloon bar, as um, as like a, um, a mother and toddler yeah. meeting place, you know. Yeah, that seemed to be working. So they was trying to sort of repurpose the building, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, there are quite a few pubs now opening up crushes and yoga studios and all sorts in them. Because, yeah, like you say, like they're great spaces. <laughs> You've got these really huge spaces that you can do use quite flexibly. And the public toilet being the, the last room, I did notice it had some some window looking out of the toilet or looking <laughs> looking into the toilet even. Yeah, so, I mean, the toilet as well, I mean... Part of that sort of came about because Manager and I, we originally taught a summer school together in 2015 about the pub. Um, and part of that was because we were looking at how the pub's almost like the modern day public toilet. Like, um, and with the closure of the pub, you're sort of seeing the closure of that facility as well. Yeah. Um, and then we became quite interested in public toilets and the closure of them. And, you know, why, why was the pub suddenly becoming the public toilet? And there's actually been, you know, huge lack of funding in public toilets for years. And, it's something that's just not really spoken about because it's just not like a very sexy topic for people. No, to no. And there's just, there's no regulations out there or anything to say that councils need to provide them. And when, when their budgets are kind of slashed, they 
just tend to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, and so we were really interesting. We went over when the art biennale in 2019 was being installed after we won the competition. And the British Pavilion was this massive social hub. And we we're like, what's going on? And it's because they've got toilets in the basement and they're one of the few pavilions <laughs> in the Giardini which has toilets. Mm. And we're like, this is fascinating. Like, you know, it just shows like why the toilet's so, so important. Um, and so we wanted to open up the toilet for everyone to be able to use. And through that process, we're hit with a lot of red tape because the existing toilets in the pavilion, they don't quite meet Italian building regulations. Yeah. Like they're not fully accessible. Um, so if you're disabled, you can't access them or in a wheelchair, you can't access them. Um, they aren't like sort of hooked up to the cistern tanks in the right way and things like that. So as a result, we weren't allowed to open them up to the public. But what we could do was put them on display, which is what we've done instead. Brilliant. So there are three toilets down there. So we've put one on display so that the invigilators can still use the other two. Um, and that's been painted in this toxic yellow, uh, toxic green, which is kind of the antithesis of the Bosch painting. Art yeah. Graphic. Designer did loads of research into pigments behind this painting and came up with this toxic green, which is like the antithesis of that. Yeah, so opened up the shutters so that anyone walking past can look in. And then we've got these photos on the walls um, by this uh, amazing uh, guy called uh, Mark. And he, um, yeah, he's put these photos on the walls of just all these public toilets he's documented um, across London um, and sort of yeah just showing all the different types of public toilets so there are and how inadequate a lot of them are and they're being repurposed as well aren't they if they're not being knocked down they're being repurposed exactly yeah many of the victorian ones are, are being repurposed and stuff but um so mark mark freeman he's uh he sort of did his whole dissertation on public toilets and what he found was the many of the toilets which are still in use they're just not adequate so you know, when you see those ones with shutters going all the way around, yeah. kind of oval shaped, they've kind of got a weight limit on them. So if you're in a wheelchair or you're a family going in, you'll set off the weight limit and it'll spray water and stuff. <laughs> um, or if you're in there for over 20 minutes, he like tested it out. He was over in there for over 20 minutes and suddenly, you know, like all these alarms go off and stuff. Well, that was the big, um, big scare when they first came about 20 or so years ago was that people would be, sitting there doing what they're doing and the door would open to the yeah. to the public while you're yeah. sitting there. Um, and then you've got like the old Victorian ones, which, um, you know, like many of them are starting to now be converted into bars and stuff and yeah. other things. But yeah, it leads you to wonder why, why they can't be converted back into toilets perhaps as well. <laughs> um, I come from a, a town in the west of Essex, East London border called Dagnum. And there was a massive big public toilet in a place called the Fiddlers, which was named after the, the pub on the big roundabout there. They had a, a male and a female um, attendant. So it was obviously costing the, the local yeah. council, you know, some monies. And they were subterranean, like most toilets are. What would that be for? Would that be for discretion, do you think? Um, I, th I think it was just in the Victorian times when they started to build all the toilets, they started to go underground, I guess, because of space, partly um, at street level and also probably for discretion. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, it does mean that there's problems for accessibility and stuff if you are to reopen them now. Um, but, but yeah. they knocked those down or I suppose yeah. filled them in. And then for some reason, they built another one, maybe 60 metres away, that was a lot smaller, that looks like a, a house or a shop even. Um, that was a toilet for about five years. Um, and now it's a, a cab office. 
That's interesting. I mean, I found it really interesting when I was doing research into public toilets as well, because in the Victorian era, they were often only built for men. So women were really left on a urinary leash. And then Selfridges was one of the first places to provide public toilets for women because they realised that women couldn't actually venture out to their store without being near enough to a toilet. Um, And they realised that, therefore, if they were to provide public toilets, they could get more more customers coming. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Mr. Selfridge was quite good at publicity, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I just thought it was quite interesting, this kind of relationship between public, private, and, yeah, um, how do you... I, I think sort of King's Cross have got some really good new public toilets in that Argent development, uh, which anyone can use. And I, I suppose it's just like, how, how do we work with public and private to allow these kind of more public uses, which are really important? Um, and the thing is, some of those old Victorian ones are absolutely beautiful, aren't they? Yeah, the tiling and stuff. I yeah. thought so, eh? I mean, the Victorians just, I think there was just this real civic pride, particularly with their infrastructure, um, which somehow has gone wayward and we've lost in between. Uh, but I am hopeful it's, it's coming back. I, like, we need to get that kind of uh, pride over our infrastructure and craft back again. But everything from like a drain pipe to a street lamp, you know, just the amount of craft and detail that went into it all. And I think what Victorians did so well was thinking about your experience at ground floor level. So when you're you're just a, a, a member of the public passing by, like what your experience is over these kind of very everyday objects. Um, and so, yeah, using infrastructure, I suppose, as a way to sort of bring joy to places. Uh, well, it does start with people like yourselves, architects for public spaces, that sort of push the boundaries a little bit or want to try something new or even, you know, reflecting back on the past in a in a retrospective manner. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, I think something as well that's really important is just to try new things and test new things and, I think increasingly our like society and our public sectors have become quite sort of risk averse um, and everyone's very scared about getting sued or blamed for things. And we kind of need to bring back this culture of it's OK to test things and it's OK to fail as long as you learn from that and you're kind of progressing from that. And I, yeah, I think it's really important to be like trying things in new ways. And I think that's where like sort of temporary installations can be really important because they allow you that flexibility to really push and test things in new ways, whether that be new materials or a new way of like using a space. Um, and that's what we, each of these interventions are doing. They're like the, the, these kind of ways to test the spaces in yeah. different ways. Um, but also I've explored in sort of different parts of, of my work, for example, like making seats out of mushrooms or mycelium. Um, and that we also architecture and Ali to understand how we could start to use different building materials. Whereas if you're on a very big, large project, it's much harder to test those things in sort of a very quick way and get that kind yeah. of feedback loop going. What I love about London is that you can have something from maybe the 18th, 19th century Mm. next to something that is 10 years old and they just sit perfectly next to each other. Yeah, it really is quite warming of respecting the old and welcoming the new, you know? Yeah, I I mean, I think London is a very unique city. Um, Unique because it's got so many green spaces, unique because it's got that kind of real history uh, behind it. And like you're saying, there's also like some really exciting projects going on. And I think often people say like, why does it take so long to train as an architect? And, you know, I think part of it is because actually when you're designing a building or a place like that, 
that's going to be there for a really long time. You've got one so attempt really, at getting yeah, it right. It's really important <laughs> to get it right. And there's so much that goes into it. You know, these these projects are really important to get right and they're going to evolve and, and grow. And, you know, yeah, if you, I mean, as you were just saying, like, if you don't get it right, then also the city's stuck with it because, yeah. you know, and increasingly there's a big move to sort of demolish less because of the environment and, and you know, to refurbish more, which means that any big project will be there for even longer. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that it is a, a very kind of important and uh, unique thing. But I'd also say that um, sort of what goes into making a building or a place, it is much more than just an architect and their vision. Like it's a real collaborative team effort between mm. so many different people. And, you know, it's like you have like really good planners and planning authorities and consultants, like local communities. Like there's so many different bits to this kind of puzzle to, to make it kind of work and become a success. You can see that's very relevant in, in the pavilion. Mm. because you can see that the different types of materials used you've even got a a playground there for teenagers yeah so that um room's designed by vpr architects and it's called play without grounds and that's all about creating spaces in the city for young people and teenagers and how there's just nowhere for them to play anymore or, or go and hang out and often actually what you see is people providing sort of very active spaces for teenagers like skateboard parks and basketball courts but yeah. you've also got a lot of teenagers so I was definitely one of them who just want to sit around with their mates and just talk and not really do anything um and as soon as teenagers do that they're seen as a threat yeah, so how do you, yeah how do you how do you actually provide spaces for them to feel like they belong and they can occupy and within that room there are sort of these speakers which play conversations uh with teenagers talking about the spaces they'd like to see in their cities and um a lot of them talking about how they just don't feel welcome anywhere and things like that and it's all about how do you sort of design with teenagers rather than for them um and yeah i think that's like a theme that's sort of running throughout the pavilion really it's all about how do we design with local communities like rather than making sweeping assumptions, you know, there's no one size fits all model. It's about sort of working together to create sort of these locally specific uh, kind of interventions. Excellent, I love it. Yeah, there's another really exciting uh, project actually called the People's Pavilion uh, being led by Beyond the Box consultants, which we've been working a little bit on with some workshops with them. Um, And that's uh, designing a pavilion uh, in the Olympic Park, which is going to open at the end of August. Um, And it'll be like the first, I think they're saying it's the first space that will be designed, built and curated by teenagers in London. Excellent. Uh, which is amazing and it just shows like that this is possible and it can happen and I think it's just really exciting because I I think um, increasingly there's just been this like them versus us kind of mentality and it's like no wonder you get gang problems no wonder if people don't feel welcome in their cities and their places they make up their own rules don't they yeah exactly um and you know also this is the future like our young people are our future and I think they've got so many amazing things to say particularly when it comes to like climate change and stuff like they're so on it and and yeah, I think that it's really important that we are designing spaces with them and giving, you know, helping them and assisting them, I suppose, to reclaim these parts of their city. And has the pandemic or, or COVID been recognised within the pavilions this year at, at Venice? Yeah, I mean, with on our own pavilion, um, we had finished fabricating all the main kind of installations just before the first lockdown last year. 
Um, so we had this very weird moment where we went to see all the installations, thought they were about to go to Venice, and then they just went into storage for a year. Wow. So they're physically they're the same, but what has changed is the messaging behind them has evolved. And we've got a lot of sound and audio within our pavilion, which has completely evolved. And I think none of the topics that we're exploring um, have dramatically changed they've just been pushed to the forefront of the conversation so you know the decline of the high street and the pub uh, which we're exploring like this, these have always been important topics to us but over the past year I think everyone's kind of really engaged in these uh, yeah. topics even more and I think that's the same for a lot of the pavilions in Venice at the moment um, they're all kind of exploring topics uh, which are really important uh, to the, their countries right now. And I think COVID has kind of led to a kind of even more renewed kind of interpretation of how important it is to be addressing uh, these topics. So the overriding kind of question that the whole Biennale asks is how will we live together, which, again, Obviously, that was announced before the pandemic, but it's even more important now. How will we actually all live together? And you've got um, the, the selection of pavilions this year is amazing. I mean, you've got the Danish pavilion, which is looking at water and flooding in Venice. And they've uh, kind of created this installation where you can play in the water, but also throughout this installation, it purifies the water. So by wow. the end, you can have a cup of tea from this water that they've drilled from the, from the ground. Um, Their and pavilion it, was quite stunning. This uh, in in 2019, yeah, uh, for the arts. Yeah, I think Denmark always do a really good job. Um, and you've got Polish pavilion that's looking at sort of rural areas um, as well, and sort of rural decline, and, and you know how do we actually um, engage with that and um, sort of all this rural architecture, um, and then. Uh, the Belgian pavilion, which has got all these amazing models in it. Uh, in, in Belgium, it's they've sort of set up where uh, there's this government scheme to really encourage and allow younger architects to take on these like fairly like mid-sized housing projects that doesn't really happen here. And it's just showing the kind of exciting results of that and how positive um, that's been. And then the American pavilion sort of exploring uh, timber, timber housing. Um, and, it, you know, how ubiquitous this kind of timber framed housing is in America and no one's really talking about it. Um, yeah, everyone's talking about timber being the future of construction and they're like, well, it's already happening. What can we learn from this? <laughs> um, and they've built this huge kind of timber framed uh, kind of structure outside their facade that you can climb up and get amazing views across the Giardini as well. Brilliant. But yeah, I mean there's it's just all sorts of different topics being explored i really love the uzbekistan pavilion as well um which um is sort of looking at the traditional kind of uzbek uh compound houses um and how these kind of communal houses are starting to be lost and how can we kind of retain this community spirit um and then also the uae pavilion uh they're looking at kind of i suppose more materiality but um they've created the structure using kind of uh dead material from the sea um, and it's really oh, wow. beautiful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And it's like really strong the kind of structural component they've made from it. Um, just using all these minerals that otherwise would have just been completely lost. It, it's just amazing, I think, because it's the Biennale is just exploring everything from policy and legislation to kind of materiality. And therefore, yeah. all these different ways that we can be working together uh, to live together. Was there something with a, a Korean architect who brought everyone together yeah 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 there is so we're doing a load of events actually at the end of august with her so um hi one she's brought together this curators collective 
um, which is essentially an opportunity for all the curators to get to know one another. And she it started off quite informally by setting up just like a series of Zoom calls between us, yeah. which was quite amazing because everyone's based all over the world. And you'd have these like really lovely Zoom calls getting to know one another. And then we would go into these breakout sessions, depending on our interests. Um, and out of that, there's then been a few projects. So one of them is this Midasage event that's being organised by the Austrian Pavilion at the end of August, which will be a load of different kind of conversations and stuff throughout the Biennale. Um, and then another one was organised by the UAE Pavilion, which was this bench competition for students to enter. And they're going to build, uh, we were judging it the other week and we've selected sort of these three benches, which are going to be built throughout the Giardini, which is firstly a lovely gesture because it allows more people to sit on free seating. Um, but all the benches are really interesting designs from nice. these amazing students around the world. Um, and I think the Curators Collective has actually been like a really kind of amazing thing to be a part of because I think normally you're quite kind of isolated and only really know your little bubble and your little yeah. world. Um, and it's been an amazing way actually to get to know all these other people from around the world. And previously we'd go out to Venice for these kind of um events where they get every kind of pavilion to stand up and just talk about what their pavilion was about but only people from europe could really attend these events whereas this is something which you can attend no matter where in the world you are well i like the idea that it was curator led and not something that yeah. was part of the structure of of the biennale you know it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's obviously more organic that way isn't it and, and you take sort of um possession of what's happening Exactly, yeah, and you can take real ownership over it and do whatever you want within it. Like, yeah, it just comes down to people who are being very. You're proud. saying about park benches, not park, you didn't say park benches. You said benches. I've always had quite an affiliation with the bench. It, um, I mean, sometimes you can sit on a bench. <laughs> I know I sound like a fucking old man here, but sometimes you can sit on a bench and you just think. Did they make this for me? Because it is so comfortable. It's just slacks of wood, but the shape is ideal, you know? I know. I think benches are really underrated. Like, they're so, I think they're so important in allowing access to space as well, like free seating. <laughs> it's so important. And I agree, like, it allows for spaces to contemplate, spaces to meet people. Like, they're, they're such important kind of parts of, of our public space. Yeah. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons there's like a big bench right outside our pavilion um, is my grandma. She became like the person we go to with our pavilion development because it's really good to have someone cast their eyes over a project yeah. who's not an architect and knows nothing about architecture. Um, and her first comment was just, where will I sit? Really? <laughs> where will I sit as I'm going around? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And my, my favourite people to discuss any of my projects with are non-architects. Yeah. Um, because they, they they will just like ask a question and like just cuts through. <laughs> yeah. And um it's it's great. So yeah. And so well, saying that about benches as well, this is a, a little bit negative, but when I started seeing councils like retrofitting arms in the middle of benches, and then I discovered that that, that was just to stop homeless people laying down on the benches, you know, or or putting these little I don't know what they're called, like little spear tops, little pyramids yeah. all about the place. Oh, man, that breaks my heart when I see. It, it's so awful. So that's called hostile design. And it's really awful. And that actually, um, there's a really, well, there was a really good campaign by Stuart Semple, the artist. Yeah. That's what made me aware of it. Yeah. 
So his hashtag hostile design campaign, that really inspired our pavilion, actually. Um, and it's quite amazing when you go to Bournemouth and you can see where the where they've actually removed um, those kind of armrests. Um, because, yeah, there's absolutely no need to do that. And it's not fixing any problem. It's just yeah. moving a problem on. Um, and it's not addressing any of the kind of root causes of an issue. And it's making our cities like just exclusive you know yeah. why shouldn't someone who's homeless be able to sleep on a bench um no one wants to you know, you know it's just yeah it, I agree with you I completely agree it's completely horrible that kind of architecture and there's definitely a big move at the moment to try and get councils and people to realize that this is not a solution and we shouldn't be doing this but someone's designing those as well it's like how can they sleep of a night you know and they're probably oh making a fortune God. from it as well. I could imagine. I <laughs> yeah. could imagine. But it was, yeah, it was Stuart Semple. I didn't understand why. That didn't even enter my mind that, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was to stop people laying down. And, yeah, I I, I got behind Stuart and gave mm-hmm. him my support. That was for sure. And at the same time, I saw that um, maybe the, the guy in Canada done this because of Stuart's thing, but it was at that exact time there was this guy in Canada, he'd made this thing on the back of a park bench, which was like a flap. It was made for the homeless people so that they could lay on the bench. This flap would come over and it would be like a roof in, right. in rough weather, you know? Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's pretty cool, I, isn't it? That is really cool. I, I love that. We need more things like that. Like, yeah. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's super interesting as well because I went down last weekend to his um, exhibition opening because he's just convert- yeah he's just converted the Bobby's Debenhams into a gallery on the high street um, in Bournemouth and I think it's really interesting how he's kind of he's transforming like this high street space into something that's really cultural that anyone can access and use but yeah um yeah I totally agree with you about the hostile design stuff and it also being an issue that people aren't aware it's happening yeah um and so therefore how do we actually raise everyone's awareness of this because as a member of the public you've actually got quite a lot of say over what happens in your city and your surroundings but often it's very difficult to realise that you have that, that kind and of Giving power. local governments a little bit of guilt goes quite a long way, isn't it? Because they don't want to be seen as, as hostile, do they, you know? I think that was what was great about the, st- the sticker campaign, like just, yeah, making it really, really public and shaming them. Yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, I've got to say, I was speaking to a, a, a couple of friends mentioning that, that we're going to be talking on the podcast. And I did say I was quite intimidated to be speaking to an architect because it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. And then I I come across the video of your pavilion. Yeah. And I saw no difference between that and a, an art installation. You know, I, I'm not just saying it because you're here, but I thought it was absolutely stunning. I wish I could go out there. I thought it was amazing. Thank you. I mean, um, yeah, I have to say, like, I think a big kind of driver was that we didn't want it to be like your traditional architecture exhibition. Um, Like we didn't want it to be a place that people don't feel comfortable going into because this needs to be a conversation about everyone, which everyone is a part of. And so we made a really conscious effort to sort of not have too much text on the walls not have like too many images or precedents or anything on the walls. It's really about these kind of installations. And we were really inspired by the art biennale and how artists like they are just so brave in a way to just um, actually allow these kind of objects that everyone can sort of just interpret 
Um, and so, yeah, it's really lovely to hear that that was what you felt from uh, watching the videos. It felt like an experience, although it was only video, it did feel like it was an experience I was participating in, you know? That's brilliant to hear, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we want, want people to feel, that they they are part of this conversation. And then uh, to get everyone excited that we can, you can, everyone can be part of this conversation. Because like you say, I think people are often put off by um it's like a very kind of complex world and you know oh, architecture that's not for me and it's you know we're trying to say actually there's room for everyone to be involved in this conversation yeah. and it's really important everyone is actually it makes it much richer um and I think traditionally there has been this thing of like the lone genius architect who doesn't relate to people and I think we're kind of trying to do the complete opposite of that and it, you know we're we've brought in so many different voices into the pavilion and stuff because it is a really collaborative kind of project. Um, I was going to say, for anyone who, who won't be able to, to visit in person, would you be able to direct them to that video? Yes. Um, so if you'd like to find out more about the pavilion, if you go to the British Council's website, um, there's actually a series of videos. <laughs> oh, I saw um, just one. On there's an it was a little tour. Yeah, there's an overview video of the tour and then you can actually click to go into more detail on each of the rooms okay, um, and learn more about the research behind each of the rooms. Um, but yeah, on the British Council's websites, there's loads of um, information about the pavilion. Um, and also, yeah, we're hoping to do a few more things which will be released on there soon. Um, so yeah, keep checking back. Uh, and with, when is the pavilion opened until physically open people until are able to get there? It's open until the end of November. Um, so, yeah, there is still time to make it out there. Um, and then we're sort of looking right now at what we do with its afterlife. So, But we'd always envisage that each of these installations would come back to a public space within the UK. So, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you updated. Oh, that's pretty cool. And, yeah, yeah congratulations on, um, on this little feather in your cap. It's, it's quite something to have, yeah? Thank you. I mean, do you think you'll make it out to Venice? I very yeah, much I doubt it. I mean, yeah. I'd wanted to go to the uh, Biennale for years and years, and I was only able to go just this year. And that was a, a 50th birthday gift from a friend. It's, it's been a funny old year because it's a shame that the restrictions are as they are, but hopefully there'll, there'll be time before November. Well, congratulations to you. Now. And what have you got planned after November? Is there anything in the pipeline for you? Yes, yeah, yeah, we're quite busy. So got a, working on a project in South Lambeth, opening up a piece of, of private land to the public. Nice. Um, working on um, Gingerbread City uh, with Museum of Architecture, um, which is an exhibition that will run in Chicago from November and a master planning all these gingerbread islands, which is really fun. Brilliant. Um, and yeah, working on some uh, workspace designs and all sorts of projects. So yeah, it's, it's been a really busy year, um, which is exciting. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, Madeline, thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. Really appreciate Madeline. it. Thank you. Bye. There you are, Madeline Kessler. That was something a little bit special, wasn't it? And as she mentioned there, you can view the video tour over on the British Council's website. Or if you'd like day-to-day -day updates, go over to Maddie's Instagram profile, which is Maddie underscore Tesla underscore. And I'd like to thank Tanny Burns of T Burns Arts for connecting me with Maddie. So that's about it from me today. So until next week, toodle pip. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. 
If you're unable to support us on Patreon, leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. Or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Anything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, ta-da. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.